Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hi, welcome to today's show. Today we're having a chat with Michael Gill. Michael is counsellor with Dragonman, an international advisory firm. He's chairman of both Newbie Global, a digital media venture, and of Sustainable Skills, which advises governments on vocational education systems. From 1998 to 2011, he was CEO and editor-in-chief of the Financial Review Group and was also chairman of AAP Limited. A really inspiring story and career spanning periods of significant disruption and change. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Michael Gill. Michael Gill, welcome to The Mentor List. Hi, Doug. Thanks for giving up your time for the listeners today to share your story and insights. No, you're welcome. It's, uh, I find the story is quite interesting that you've done so far. Oh, great. Great. Good to hear. Well, yeah, really, really keen to, to hear your story and, you know, the story of media and disruption and... I might just stop talking and I'll ask you the question. Do you want to share with the listeners your story? Well, my background is that I grew up in Newcastle. I guess I had a kind of dream run as a Newcastle boy in the sense that I got one of those BHP um, scholarships and I was working there, but not enjoying it, actually. I guess at that time, it was a long time ago now, they, it was a pretty stultifying culture in a way, and I think reflected the times, certainly reflected the insular business environment of the time. When I was looking for something else, I ended up working at a bank and had a very instructive experience there where through accident, really, I found myself getting a pretty face-to-face with what was one of the early speculative booms of our of my lifetime anyway, which is the 1970s financial services excesses and the lending frenzy that in effect brought down this bank, which was one of the second oldest, or was the second oldest in the country. Again, still not finding the job I really was, you know, getting my teeth into. I went along to the editor of the Newcastle Herald. I'm not quite sure why. I think the most likely reason is that I was a bit bored and I was doing a, I was going to university at night, mainly for interest, and I was studying history. And one of the, it was a mature age tutorial, and the one of the people in it was married to the chief sub editor of the Newcastle Herald. And we used to have these fairly open discussions, and the. I just got interested in what he did and the Newcastle Herald editor tried his best to convince me that this was a very dumb decision because of, you know, it was a gigantic reduction in salary and I was, you know, just starting out and had a mortgage and all those sorts of things. But I did it anyway. That work was, I found it just really enjoyable. I don't know whether it's because I'm just curious, you know, it's an excuse to ring people up and ask them any old question you like and you, it's great, really. It's very interesting work. And the challenge of writing and expressing yourself clearly, I found that really rewarding. And I guess, luckily for me, I was noticed by what was then probably the most dynamic newspaper in the country, which was The Age. And I moved to Melbourne, a town I'd never been to. Had a really rich experience living in Melbourne. I experienced all sorts of kind of breadth and different sorts of people, which I think you can probably only do as a as a person who isn't from Melbourne in Melbourne. You know, you don't have to be born into any of the tribes. I don't even have a football team, which was sinful. And I got to just be able to talk to lots of different people. And I grew a lot in the journalism. I think 
you know, it was just a really interesting way to, I would say an interesting way to experience life really in many ways. So I, I just, you know, for a long time, I was just really like a sponge, really. I was just having a lot of fun. I was learning a lot of things. I was getting lots of different experiences, both in my work and in my private life. But, you know, then not surprisingly, at some point or other, I decided it was best for me to get some experience in the world. And I went to live overseas for a while and did some work in Europe and USA and Japan. I ended up back in Australia, worked for some newspapers Got it into my head in about mid-1980s that, you know, Australia could do with a second business newspaper. And I talked the then chief executive of the Herald and Weekly Times into using their platform. They had printing presses in all the major cities and distribution in all the major cities but didn't have a national product of any kind. And at the time, the Financial Review was only published in Sydney and Melbourne and flown everywhere else. And this seemed like a good idea. It was all underway and, you know, we had a lot of people working really hard and all that sort of stuff. But unfortunately for me, just as we started, or not just me, quite a few people, just as we started to get our act together, the whole group was subject to a takeover by Rupert Murdoch, who, you know, fairly obviously already has a national newspaper. And so, you know, someone I knew quite well at the time had been involved in a joint venture with Murdoch many years before on behalf of the European company. And he said to me, I don't know whether he was being kind or not, but he said, uh, Michael, you need to be wary, you know. I mean, getting into a joint venture with with Rupert, in my experience, is a bit like buying a dog with him, only your half of the dog dies. (laughs) (laughs) My half of the dog dies. You know, I, I went on and I had a period working in the starting programs on Sunday for Channel 9 years of that which was really you know another experience for me it was totally new and some of it was really interesting it's a quite a different experience actually between working in journalism to write and working in journalism to create television it's very it's you learn a lot actually and i then was was recruited by the age uh, sorry that's not right by, by the australian financial review and started out for them in melbourne i moved to sydney at some point or other became deputy editor and then in 1996 Fairfax was in the throes of coming to grips with this emerging internet technology they wanted to create a small group of people to begin to work on it and I joined that group and I had a few interesting jobs there I started a website which had the first live financial markets share market information on it did some other things that were interesting and taught me a lot about how the whole thing kind of worked, spent a lot of time talking to publishers in other places, particularly in in Europe and the US. And then in 1998, I had the opportunity to become the CEO of the Financial Review, which is fairly ironic, really. But (laughs) And that was, I spent a lot of time, I did that from 98 to 2011. And it was really, you know, it's a bit of a roller coaster, I guess. I mean, there was the usual kind of cycles of the Australian economy, which affect newspapers in a very direct way in terms of management, but also this sort of constant, you know, opportunity and challenge of what the internet was going to do. Because, you know, in 98, it was very hard to be clear about what sorts of behaviours you would get. And of course, no one could have predicted 
how much consumer behaviour would change when you have these enormously powerful computers that are in your pocket. So it was fascinating. But I guess I was most influenced in thinking about it, in thinking about what to do, I guess by by two things. One of them was the the business side was managing, was unlike a lot of other newspapers, was very heavily reliant on the customer paying for it, you know, a very relatively high proportion of its income was based on people paying to buy it each day. So it already had a, if you like, a value relationship with the customers, which wasn't necessarily and often was not at all the case with many other more popular products. So there was a fundamental assumption there that whatever we did, there had to be a price on it. And secondly, when I'd spoken with the publishers elsewhere, you know, the guys at the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Nikkei in Japan, The Economist, and other people I was able to talk to who I either knew or was able to meet. The interesting thing was there were kind of two very divergent points of view. There was a more, if you like, a popular view or a fashionable view. It was enormous opportunity to expand audiences, unlimited distribution, whole new technology thing, you know, just hop in and give it a go for free, basically, just put the content up. So the most divergent of those was the Financial Times, which had, you know, a high cover price on the printed product and therefore a significant part of its revenue. They decided to make it free in order that they would channel a very affluent investor-type audience into financial products. In other words, they'd make a commission on selling people an investment. I had a debate with the guy who was running FT.com, who was an ex-McKinsey consultant, and essentially said, I, you know, my experience is that our audiences come to us to inform themselves about their choices, and I don't think the idea of trying to get them to be herded towards a choice would be a very rewarding strategy. In fact, I think they may even resent it. Anyway, he, he went on and spent a lot of money and, effectively blew up the Financial Times. Wow, okay. (laughs) So they took a while to recover from that thinking. The flip side, the alternative point of view, the non-fashionable point of view, if you like, was expressed directly by the Wall Street Journal guys who just simply said, you know, this thing needs to be paid for. We have to put a price on it. But the one that was really interesting and, and really got my attention was the Economist guys who said, why would you do it at all? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we keep looking at this thinking, the way we make money today, there is no possibility of it, as far as we can see, in a website at this point in time. So why would we do it? I thought that was a pretty interesting, very economist-type, pointy-head logic sort of approach. And they didn't. They didn't for quite a while. They treated their website as a kind of a, you know, second thought. I'm sure that wasn't a second foot. I'm sure they were thinking hard about it, but they just thought, until we understand why, we're not going to do it. And interestingly with them, what they did, in fact, was consolidated all their business. They had a few things, separate magazines and a few things going on at the time. So the economists really, at, at the end result of it, by expanding the print, increasing their cover, they took the price upwards. They made themselves quite very stable and quite profitable which was the, not the response, I think, of anybody else I can think of, although not that many people can do what The Economist does. I came back and I guess my general view at that time was 
if we're going to do something with the fin review online, we basically need to charge for it. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about that. But for a while, it was a fairly academic exercise because Fairfax, like a lot of publishers, decided that the internet wasn't something they wanted their publishers to worry about. They wanted people who were solely concerned about the internet to do, which in Fairfax, as it was with many other businesses, people who'd come from a consulting background, interestingly, in in a surprising number of cases from McKinsey, were put in charge of it. And they ran in Fairfax, as they did elsewhere, a relatively parallel and not particularly integrated operation. And it's not a secret. I mean, I had a long history of conflict over that issue and ultimately a few years in, uh, probably 2005 or something, the board agreed, the the CAO and the board agreed that it would be better if the Finreview was run as a single operation with print and online together. So we then started out working on it and it took a while. We had one false start with a bad series of decisions by me in terms of the product design and some of the technology. But by about 2008 or 2009, we sorted a lot of things out and had a, you know, a thing that was going quite well and the, the business was fairly stable and all that sort of stuff. So I guess my experience of that period was it was, <laughs> there was so much uncertainty and so many moving parts and so, so much difficulty in management at the time. It was really, really hard to keep a constant thread on things and you know we had to we really had to spend a lot of effort I would I think the lesson for me about that if I look back on it was that the best time I spent and I'm glad I spent a lot of it was was really trying to keep my own management group really really well informed and very much engaged with the questions at hand and any uncertainties about the questions at hand and against the execution of the strategy and to become as flexible as we could possibly be given the number of things we didn't have certainty over and that turned out pretty well i was really pleased with the team and i think pretty pleased with the results actually i mean the outcome was over that time that the fin review actually substantially outperformed any of its direct global peers on any of the metrics you, you would choose either financial or qualitative and in its own terms you know was very stable and and was in good shape and had a good growth outlook i mean the the 2008 financial crisis was very very disruptive and changed a lot of behaviours, particularly in the in the advertising side of the business. So the outcome over the over you know whatever it was 13, 14 years was the Finreview Group was outperformed its global peers on on the sort of metrics you would expect the financial and qualitative measures that we we had available to us. I think most importantly, it actually had a strategy that was sustainable and may I think have led to quite a lot of opportunity in an, as the future unfolds because it really was developing an audience reception and, and a paid value audience that would have allowed it to expand based solely on how people perceive the value of the content and what they would pay for. That strategy now effectively is the strategy of the Financial Times and, and a guy who was my peer at the Wall Street Journal said to me a few years ago that he just wished he had seen what I saw, which was the need actually to put prices up, which was, a, you know, one of the things I was criticised for at the time. Yeah, um, wow. So I think that, you know, the things I take out of that period are largely to do with having confidence in the sort of the qualitative aspect of the product we were producing and really believing that people valued it and making sure we delivered the thing that they valued. 
and I think also, you know, trying to make that something that wasn't my idea, but something which was tested and shared amongst the group that I worked with, whether they be the managers or the staff. And and it was, you know, it was working really well. I mean, it was uncomfortable, and you can imagine, particularly in a media company. <laughs> working in a situation where you're the only guys that are, that are pursuing a strategy which a lot of people think is wrong, if not possibly crazy, it takes a lot of discipline and belief to pursue those things. So, and I was really pleased that people had enough belief in what they did that they really stuck to it. In fact, stuck to it in a way I can remember when David Kirk became CEO, he said to me once that in the, as, he, as he spoke to the various executives in the company, the noticeable thing about my team was that they all had a very clear understanding and common purpose, which I, was, I found very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I think, you know, I mean, the lessons to me is, you know, if I look at it all, I've had a very, you know, I've really enjoyed the careers I've had, the jobs I've had at different times. And mostly I think the reason for that is that I've tended to follow my interests and I've been lucky in, in being able to do that and find mostly in most places a pretty good environment to do it in and nice people, you know, encouraging intelligent people to work with. Yeah, and you've had a really good variety of experience in, in media as well in terms of just the times of, you know, I imagine when you started at the age and coming down to Melbourne, you know, being working in a newspaper would have been fantastic and it was you know, well-resourced, people were buying newspapers and, and then to the other extreme where you're trying to lead, you know, the Fin Review into a subscription model where you've got this thing called the internet. So you're just high uncertainty. So you've had sort of the two extreme situations in that area. So, yeah, what a great blend of experience. Yeah, and I don't, and I, you know, I wouldn't understate the amount of pleasure you get out of the journalism. You know, it's... Uh, it's a wonderful job if you're working in the right places where, because I was lucky and I worked in places like the age and so on at times where the, the recognition of those newspapers was high. You know, if, if you called someone, even people who knew that you were likely to ask questions they didn't necessarily want to answer, most often they would pick up the phone. That was a great credit to the, to the newspaper itself and the people who worked there that they had such a good what I would call a rapport with their community and great deal of community respect. And it made it really interesting. Yeah, it, it was fascinating, actually. Yeah, great. And I think if you've sort of touched on it following your interests, but is there any, which is advice in itself, but was there advice that you'd have or that you received, you know, in your career that you could share with the listeners? There's a lot of things that I've learned and I owe a lot of debt to people from various bits of guidance. I have to admit that quite often I was a bit of a, you know, I wouldn't say a, an adventurer, but I was a bit inclined to be a bit pig-headed once I got something in my head. But I, I think, you know, a lot of people, I really would say that the best things that happened to me in terms of mentoring were people who had positions of authority or had capabilities or the ability to help me, who for no reason other than the fact that they were willing to help people help me and there's a long list of people I owe a great debt to and I most of them I'm, I hope know how much I appreciate it but to me the, the great thing in life is is discovering that there are people who for no other reason than their own goodwill will help someone who's trying to do something that they think is a good thing that's my lesson yeah fantastic so 
so what do we we do we just ask well like i've just yeah. asked you to be on the podcast and you said yes <laughs> so a great example so it's was there any habits that you found really valuable or find really valuable that have sort of helped you you know hold these big roles or and even today with your various board positions and international travel you know what what sort of habits have you picked up along the way that you think have helped well i think i don't know whether it was because of something i've always had in my mind something that my grandfather said to me when i was quite young actually which was simply you know don't worry about things you can do nothing about and i think that you know i think that's been whether it's in, been conscious or unconscious, I think that's been a really important characteristic because, you know, particularly when you get into situations where you're either swamped with different interesting things to do, which often was in, in journalism, or, you know, surrounded by lots of different moving parts of uncertainty, as I was quite often in management. And in management, the first thing you discover is that there's an awful lot of people who work with you whose issue is the most important issue. <laughs> In their mind, certainly, and you have to be, you know, have to be figuring out which thing you really have to act on now, and which thing, you know, you don't need to act on, because quite often a lot of things will will fix themselves if you leave them alone. That's the thing I would say is I think particularly when you find you've got a lot on, it's really valuable to have in your mind where you're going, what's the thing that you really need to do today that will get you to where you're intending to go. Yeah, right, and and that's that's a, a probably a good segue. Don't worry about things you can do nothing about. It's probably a quote in itself. Did you have a have a quote lined up, or was there was that the one? Well, that's the one that I I would offer you. I don't yeah. have a lot of. There's a quote from a book that I've always loved, but I could save that for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, well, while we're on the subject of books, was there one you'd recommend? that you got a lot of benefit from that people should sort of have a read of? Well, I don't know whether it's a benefit or not. You, you, you have to judge for yourself. But I, I have found, I guess, in many, many periods of my life, particularly periods where, you know, you can be stressed out over things or maybe periods where you can be very disappointed with people, there's a book called Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. It's just a really wonderful recognition of how absurd we are human beings how contradictory, how silly, how frustrating, and it's funny. You know, it makes you think, particularly in moments when you feel like, you know, how could someone possibly do that or why is this happening? You just look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's what life's like. It's silly. Oh, great. Sounds like a good way to look it's at the world. And, yeah. It's a great book. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that on the mentalist.com.au site as well. Yeah, th- thanks again, Mike, today for taking the time to share your story with the listeners and yeah, your advice and habits. And it's been really interesting listening into the struggles of the newspaper and also the good times and your passion for, for journalism. But if those that are listening in now, they're working out or they're at the gym or driving to work and they're resonating with what you're saying and they, they sort of want to find out a bit more, how would they go about contacting you? I'm pretty accessible. I mean, probably the easiest way is to go through LinkedIn. Yeah, great. And I'll, I'll definitely have links to this show and, yeah, the books you've recommended and links to how they can get you on LinkedIn up on thementalist.com. So, Michael, yeah, thank you once again. And for those listening in, tune in again next week for another great show. 
Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.